Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to The Hidden Gin, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Hi and welcome to this very special bonus series of The Hidden Gin, The Interviews. In these episodes, you'll hear me talk to people from all walks of life who have had gin experiences, are drawn to the stories of gin, and draw lessons from these stories. You'll hear from artists, scholars, writers, journalists, and gin exorcists. And even from me, as I discuss how and why this series came about in a very personal conversation with my husband. Thanks for listening and enjoy. All right, so let's just start at the top, Ben. Um, can you, Ali, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Ali Olomi. I am an assistant professor of history at Penn State Abington, uh, working on uh, medieval Islam in the modern global Middle East. I specialize in Muslim politics, uh, Islamic esotericism, and folklore. Wow. So I discovered you. I don't know how I discovered you. I don't know if I searched for the word gin on Twitter. I don't know how I encountered mm-hmm. your Twitter account, but it is a has been a gold mine and it's been a treat to follow you online. <laughs> do you common. do you have a special affinity for the gin? Like what's going on here? I mean, I I love uh, the jinn, and I think that they're a fascinating sort of, of creature that doesn't often get talked about outside of sort of Muslim circles. Uh, and so while you say jinn and Muslims immediately go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Most people don't uh, who aren't Muslims. And so I, I've always had this connection. I'm like, well, why don't I share a little bit about the jinn and talk about it? I had already been doing it in my classrooms for a long time. Whenever I taught history of Islam, there's always several weeks kind of dedicated to like esotericism, cultural aspects, sharing of jinn stories. It was also an opportunity for my Middle Eastern students and South Asian students and North African students to share uh, their own experiences. And then I was like, you know what? I could just open this up a little bit more and talk about it more publicly. And so I did. I started using Twitter as a way of sharing uh, aspects of Islamic esotericism, astrology, folklore, but then also the jinn as well. Uh, can I ask you what your your own like ethnic and cultural background is? Sure. Yeah, I come from uh, an Afghan background. I was born and raised in the United States. My family is uh, all Afghan. So let me start. I'm going to ask you a real personal question now. Have you, sure. before we get into all the questions about Jen, have you ever had a personal encounter with Jen in your own life? Well, my family has had a pretty interesting experiences with Jen. It's not uncommon to talk about uh, various sort of encounters. Um, some very kind of famous ones, usually around a funeral, 
my great grandfather was known to speak to jinn um and i i've had you know kind of interesting weird and eerie encounters out there whether they're jinn or not you know it's up for people to decide but one kind of interesting moment was i came home from school i was relatively young i think it was maybe early high school late middle school and i walked in and there was just this cat in my house the doors were locked the windows were locked I had no idea how this cat got in and it completely had made itself at home just very relaxed when i walked in it wasn't startled just kind of looked up from where it was napping as if you're interrupting my nap um in a very sort of regal manner and as as is customary for anyone who's grown up in a muslim background you kind of know that oh maybe that could be a jinn mm-hmm. and so there's sort of protocol around it you you don't you don't try not to send it you try not to be rude so i simply said uh, thanks for visiting but it's time for you to go uh and kind of opened the door and it got up and walked right out <laughs> very kind of interesting and eerie encounter and and kind of like maybe it was just a really funky cat uh, or maybe it was something else. Who knows? Wow. So you, at a pretty young age, like knew the protocol to like ask a gin oh, to leave yeah. your home. <laughs> oh, oh, totally. Well, I mean, I grew up. Uh, my my fascination with folklore was really fostered by by my my family. My grandmother would tell me stories growing up, and those stories always involved kind of some elements of of instruction, some elements of teaching. So like. You know, you know, you knew how to, you know, what prayers to say. I had to kursi, you know, you knew uh, if you were scared at night, what you would do. Uh, if you encountered the the sort of numinous or the, the, the jinn, you kind of had some ideas because you had been familiar with the story. So you hear it growing up. Um, and by about middle school or high school, you know, you kind of figured out, all right, if I need a jinn, just don't piss it off. Mm. Well, did you ever have any any of the weird encounters you have? Have any of them ever been frightening? Uh, there was one slightly frightening. I wouldn't say it was like frightening in the sense like I was scared for my life, but it was one of those like, what what is even happening here? It was actually in Afghanistan. So I visited Afghanistan uh, once I had graduated high school. Um, and in uh, one of the ruins, there was a, uh, a blind kid. This was a sort of historical site. Uh, that had slightly been turned into a, a shrine. People would go there and they would uh, lock locks, like little uh, key locks, that they would say prayers, and they would lock it, and that's a way to lock your prayer or light candles, kind of a folk practice that isn't considered part of Orthodox Islam, but was part of the sort of popular practices found there. And one of the, the kids there, and I don't know if the kid was part of the shrine or, or custodian um, of some sort, uh, he was a blind kid, and I had my camera with me uh, at the time, and he was with his, I think, grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, and he was also blind, and they knew I had a camera. Like, I, I didn't know how they knew, because like, you have to put, leave the camera here. It, was it clinking? It was it clanking? Um, and there was something very kind of surreal and slightly otherworldly about both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they had this, like they could see me, even though I'm like, I'm 100% sure they can't see me. These two are, are, are blind. They shouldn't wow. be able to. Um, are you, were you sure they were blind? I guess is the question. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the real question. They could easily have, have not been, but they weren't wearing uh, sunglasses uh, or any type of covering, and their eyes were uh, white. 
um, and, okay. and slightly damaged. So maybe they had sight. Maybe, you know, my young teenage mind was slightly imagining uh, or, or making it more than it, uh, there was. But this, this particular shrine was known for dealing with, with a blind look. There was a, a small spring next to it where people would kind of wash their faces and their, their hands, and it was reputed to kind of cure warts and acne and blindness. Were, were kind of the things associated with it. So the custodians were generally believed to be blind themselves, but who knows? Maybe they were running some great, you know, scam or, mm. or you know, I was imagining it. But it was a very unnerving, not frightening, but very unnerving kind of experience. They were, it was, um, they were far more sure and confident and authoritative than I had expected. And they seemed to kind of see right through me, which was a very weird experience. Do you think they could have been Jin? Is that what your like suspicion was? Yeah, the, the suspicion was they were they could possibly have been non not exactly human because later when I asked my uncle, I was like, "So who are those people uh, by the door?" And I was like, who, "Which people?" Was, oh, uh, you know the two the, the the kid and the the grandfather, and he didn't see them. So maybe he wasn't paying attention or, or maybe he was doing his own thing and maybe I imagined it. Um, but that was for me, not only was the experience itself kind of unnerving, their kind of their personality, if you will, yeah. or the vibe to use the millennial word, right? Yeah. The vibe that they were giving. Um, but also the afterwards of it, which was, I experienced it, but my uncle didn't. And, and he was like, yeah, I didn't see anyone there. I was like, Oh, that's crazy. Well, so let yeah, me ask you this, was, though. It was very did, interesting. Did you put your camera down and then walk into the shrine, or what did you do? I did. I did put the camera down. There was no arguing. I mean, I went in there as a sort of like amateur wannabe historian at the time, wanted to take pictures, and I didn't want to bring them back. But there was like, yeah, I'm not arguing with these people. I'm not. I'm not they, this is, they, they're in charge. I'm not. I'm a visitor. So I put my camera down, did make a fuss, went in. Uh, saw a couple of the candles that didn't light anything or, or put any locks, but I kind of walked around. It was really hot uh, and, and kind of dimly lit, mostly just candles. Uh, and then when I walked back out, made a small donation, said thank you, and took my camera with me. But then when I asked my uncle, once we got back to the car, he was just like, yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. And they were sitting right in front, too. Um, it wasn't like they were in an alcove or they were off, off kind of hidden. They were very much right there. Mm. Um, and so the experience was surreal. And then later, as I started to kind of delve more academically into the gym, that became a very common theme amongst them as sort of guardians of shrines and places in nature um, where they would kind of perch and sometimes appear as people or as animals, etc. So who knows what that experience was? It could have been the heat it could have been an overwrought imagination <laughs> but it was it was un, it was unnerving it was probably the most unnerving encounter i've had with something otherworldly wow okay so let me um i, I want to talk about like the so I, from from the research i've done and i have there's so much i mean like it's yes. just it, there's so many rabbit holes oh my gosh it's been oh yeah this is like more complicated than like solving a wrongful conviction it's it's like one hole after another <laughs> after another there is just such a i mean there's centuries and centuries and centuries of you know uh, resource yeah. materials crazy but one of the things i'm trying to figure out is this that you know i i am getting a little bit confused about how 
like mm-hmm. gin are categorized and I've seen it in so many different ways. Well, first of all, there seems to be like, there's a clear, um, there's clear evidence for the fact that people believed in the existence of jinn before Islam, mm-hmm. right? Like they were worshipped yeah. by the pre-Islamic Arabs. There's connections to like Assyrian and Babylonian and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. But like how they're categorized is a little bit confusing to me. And I'll give you an example. I read mm-hmm. one place where there are like basically four categories. Like the categories would be yeah. so the ones who live among us. There's the one that attaches mm-hmm. themselves to children, and then it seems like there's all these categories of really scary ones. <laughs> so it's like yes. the afrit, the marid, the um, yeah. the shayateen. Now I don't understand are those separate categories? Are they all under one category of like the bad ones, or how do how am I supposed right. to understand these? You're you're absolutely right here, and you're completely fair to be confused. Everybody is confused, and that's because uh, the categorizations overlap and are contradictory and vary from author to author. Mm. Uh, sort of classically, the jinn are referred to uh, in sort of uh, types, that there are those that fly, there are those that are amongst us, and those that take sort of human sh- or animal shape. That's one way of categorization. And then you'll find a, a more sort of uh, uh, atomized categorization in which they have names. There's the Afrit, the Marid, the Jean, the Roux. Uh, and then there are e- even further types of, of sort of categorization, some that are very kind of local. Um, and all of them are, you know, from an academic perspective, they're all right. That's just because people are going there dealing with something that is intangible. They're dealing with either uh, sort of a literary uh, experience that they're writing about the jinn in, in the world of fiction and literature, or they're dealing with it in a sort of religious cosmological sense, uh, or they're dealing with it in a folklore sense in which it's uh, oral stories that are told. And so as a result, there's a great deal of uh, diversity or approaches towards classifications, and all of them are useful in their own ways. Um, I've discussed some of the classifications and kind of the the threads that I've done, but even then, it's just a sort of limited approach. There's so many different ways. Um, and there was a period of time, and particularly during the, the medieval era, from about the 9th century to the 13th century, in which uh, Muslim writers were really just trying to classify the whole world. They were writing about various animals and different places in the world, even people. They were classifying people. And so the jinn were kind of caught up in this moment of sort of compilation, this moment of encyclopedia writing, uh, and and sort of were part of this attempt to systematize the world or understand at least the world in a sort of orderly fashion. Uh, and there's a debate, you know, some some authors talk about the Afrit is not separate from the Marie, that the two are actually the same. Uh, and others are a little bit more like, no, no, there's a difference between these. So there is a great deal of sort of slippage in the categories, and they're not as fixed um, as we might think. Okay. And many jinn kind of overlap with one another. Some will say, oh, it's an Afrit, and others will say, oh, that was actually a Marid. And some will say, oh, it's both. So there is a lot of overlap. I feel better knowing that because I thought this is really so complicated that I cannot comprehend it. So I'm missing something. Isn't there a chart somewhere? You're you're feeling exactly the way all of us are feeling who work on this. That's exactly how it is. Okay. Okay, good. One of the things, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who about, you know, just gin experiences and stuff. And he made Mm -hmm. this comment. He said, 
you know, I don't know. I mean, he comes from a South uh, South Asian background as well. And he's like, mm. I don't know. He's like, you know, it just seems like the gin kind of skipped over North America and Europe. Like they're all, why are they all like, why are they all concentrated back like where we come from? I don't know. Like, yeah, clearly, you know, very skeptical. Stuff. But, you know, now, of course, there's also the idea that a lot of those kind of supernatural experiences that yeah. people do experience in 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 the west might you could attribute to gin we we think everything's gin but yeah are there places that you're going to find it seems like there are parts of the world like places like in morocco or oman or so there's just certain places yeah. where it just seems like it's they're like they just populate those places yeah certainly i mean there's there's kind of uh, two different approaches one is the the approach that the gin are universal and that because they're a hidden race alongside humans, that they that wherever you find humans, so too will you kind of find jinn. And it's, uh, some would argue that the sort of folklore parallels that we find uh, are evidence of that. Now, uh, academics would simply say that these are people who are encountering similar, you know, numinous experiences or supernatural experiences and trying to make it legible. But it is quite striking that, for example, uh, far off places in, in northern Europe refer to concepts like elves and and dwarves and trolls that have a lot of similarities to some of the stories about the jinn. Um, similarly, the, the concept of the she in, in sort of the Celtic world, uh, a sort of uh, hidden race of fairies, very similar to the jinn. But it's also simultaneously true that they seem to congregate in certain places and that some places have reputations of, of being uniquely haunted by jinn. Uh, Oman, as you rightly pointed out, is one of those, right? Very famously kind of associated the most gin haunted place in the world. Um, but so too we find uh, South Asia, India, is, is, especially Islam has arrived in India and in Pakistan. The kind of language of the jinn is very popular. There's an idea that it is uniquely haunted. Afghanistan, another place that's considered uniquely haunted. Islands in the uh, Indian Ocean are also considered to be kind of places that are unique to the gin. And I think some of this is revolves around the type of lore that gets told, uh, that's really kind of strong storytelling cultures. That's why we have more stories coming out of those places, but also because of, of their histories and locations themselves. Jinn are and said to believe, you know, the belief is that sure they live amongst us, but they're uniquely kind of associated with ruins and they're associated with sort of ancient places. Uh, and so in the kind of popular Muslim imagination, places like Oman and South Asia and Afghanistan and these islands often are tied to like, oh, these are really ancient civilizations. Oh, these are places with a lot of ruins or, oh, this, these are a lot of these natural untouched formations. Therefore, of course, these places have to have more gin. So you have these kind of two parallel traditions that are working side by side. The one, gin is really universal. You can find them anywhere. And Muslims make legible kind of supernatural experiences vis-a-vis the gin. UFO abduction, well, that's a gin. Uh, haunting, that's a gin. Um, as well crop as circles, crop circles are definitely circles. <laughs> yeah, crop circles, gin. So there's all like everything is made legible within that idea of the gym. And then this uh, other parallel tradition that's more like, well, there's concentrations of them out there in the world. And so maybe you're not going to find a lot of them in North America, but if you go to Oman, you're going to find a lot of them. Mm. Can I ask you, though, if, uh, and I'm sure you have, in all your years of, like, studying this, examined, like, you know, 
gen stories from different parts of the world. Are there kind of common themes you see, and are there sometimes like real divergences, like in stories, let's say yeah. you hear from like let's say Bosnia versus Indonesia, or you know, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there are very common themes amongst amongst gen stories, and you can see them. Uh, kind of globally, and that's an that's an example of the way in which, as Islam spread, so too did the stories of the jinn spread with them. And so those themes are found everywhere: the idea of a hidden race, that they're kind of mischievous, that they're associated with the night, uh, that they're linked to animals. Those are all very common, no matter where you go from. North North Africa, all the way to Indonesia, those are very common. But then there are also kind of regional variations. So, for example, uh, in North Africa, you'll find more uh, kind of uh, symbiotic relationships with the jinn, in which the jinn, as troublesome as they can be, can be invited in for a sort of consensual possession. That is, possession that is actively sought out. And these are found in certain sort of Sufi circles. The Bufis, for example, will engage in this type of activity in which the jinn will actually possess certain saints or sages or mystics and then kind of work miracles and offerings and sort of do oracular activities. That's very uniquely North African. And you find it in Morocco, you find it uh, some other places. Sudan is another place you'll find it. You're not going to find that, for example, in Lebanon. You're not going to find that in Syria. You're not going to find that in Saudi Arabia, where the jinn are far more kind of problematic. They're kind of a pain. And you live alongside them, but you don't want them to possess you. That's a bad experience. It's, a, it's an invasive experience. And then contrast, I would say, uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, where the jinn have a much sort of clear shamanic component to them. They're associated more actively with healing uh, and medicine and uh, practices that are very clearly uh, part of local and pre-Islamic uh, folk belief. So there, there is a, this is one of the reasons why I find the jinn so fascinating, is that it simultaneously shows us the way that Islam spread and was localized, but also shows us the way in which uh, various pre-Islamic practices are preserved, whether it's a cult of possession or it's a shamanic healing tradition. Those things end up getting incorporated in the sort of folk Islamic practices, and the jinn are front and center in them. And how people approach the jinn, how they see the jinn, their relationship to the jinn, uh, really tells us these kind of unique and diverse traditions. Um, and most of it is pre-Islamic that just kind of endures or, or reimagined within a sort of Islamic cosmology. Yeah. Can I ask you, have you come across any kind of like narratives or beliefs, let's say, amongst the first people in North America um, yeah. that might coincide or overlap or somehow connected gin, gin tradition. Yeah, it was to a certain degree. A lot of the kind of uh, land spirits and nature spirits found within uh, first people, first nations uh, traditions have some similarity uh, to the gin, particularly if we, if we were to look at them in a sort of, in their pre-Islamic form as these sort of intermediary entities between the, the sort of celestial world and the human world, uh, particularly if we see them as nature spirits uh, and not just sort of infernal, uh, then yes, there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of commonality. I wouldn't say they map out exactly, uh, and there's some very clear differences, uh, but 
I would say that they're mostly, you can find similar traditions almost globally. Um, for example, when I was talking about um, the house gin that, that exists in the leaving offerings of milk, that's found in Slavic countries, that's found in Russia, that's found in Northern Europe. Uh, this idea of a house spirit or a house elf that you can uh, work with. And you find similar amongst, uh, even in uh, South America, there are some uh, traditions amongst uh, the indigenous populations in Brazil of a certain type of fiery serpentine land spirits. And they sound, when you discuss them, when you kind of dis- dissect them, they sound very much like jinn. Uh, so there is a lot of kind of overlap and, and there are a lot of kind of parallel traditions that uh, someone can look at and go, oh, yeah, that sounds gin-like to me. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like it could be a gin. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of different explanations for one being that, again, people, wherever they are, are encountering nature, the world, the other in, in similar fashions. When you when you said people leaving milk out, the first thing I thought of was Santa Claus. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have no idea. That's any connection, right? Right. It, it's a you know that 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 whole Santa Claus narrative is as much as it's commercialized and you know kind of a, a made up almost to a certain extent, uh, you know, corporate holiday. The, it has much older folklore roots. The idea of leaving out some type of offering and it was always either sweets or milk. Um, to goodly spirits of some sort, or to, to appease spirits, found almost almost globally. Oh my God! Maybe Santa Claus' origin was that he was a gin. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. We'll be right back after this short break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. I want to ask you about something. I thought it's interesting. I and it, it seems like a very common experience, and of course, it could mm-hmm. be attributed to to different things rather than gin. But my own husband has had this experience, and I know a number of mm-hmm. men who have said they've had this experience where um, it sounds like sleep paralysis. They wake up, they're paralyzed, mm-hmm. they sense or see or feel this 
presence on top of them, either pinning them mm-hmm. down, holding them around the throat, something. And it seems like a, a female, like for some reason, the sense is that this is a female entity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what is, I don't know if it's just me, if I like, I, I just happen to know like four or five people who have similar experiences, but it mm-hmm. seems like, is that the sleep straight up sleep paralysis or what do you think? Well, it's interesting is that the experience of sleep paralysis, uh, you know, in psychology is almost uh, universally found within gin lore. And one, it tells us that, you know, ancient peoples are trying to make sense of whatever their experience fundamentally is. Um, and that we've been experiencing sleep paralysis since time immemorial. Um, I mean, we can go all the way back to, to Mesopotamia and the, the language about the Lilitu, these kind of female spirits that cause nightly emissions, that cause paralysis. Um, you know, they, they've been, that story and that narrative has been in folklore for ages. But the jinn also are associated with it. And the jinn um, have this kind of uh, connection with night terrors, the waking up that in, the, in that state of terror, not just nightmares, but true night terrors and sleep paralysis. Uh, and it is often associated with female female gin, and there is a sort of kind of gendered analysis that could be done there. Why is it a female? Um, but there, it's interesting because the the gin that are said to cause those sort of night terrors, Alhira is one kind of famous gin that does that. Uh, Haraja is another very famous gin that's associated with uh, sleep paralysis. That um, they are female, and they're simultaneously considered as terrifying and seductive. They have kind of this both quality to them. Um, and then other instances, they are, they're not even gendered. They're simply seen as sort of shadowy figures, which is another very common way that the jinn are described. If they're not described in sort of very explicitly monstrous or animal-like terms, they're just described as shadows. Uh, and so, so for a lot of people, that sleep paralysis experience, which involves the inability to move and the see, the, you know, this kind of visitation by a shadowy figure, uh, is seen as a jinn phenomenon. And there's some really interesting and cool work that's being done by anthropologists and psychologists who are kind of exploring the intersection there between mental health, between, you know, something very natural, but the narrative, the sort of uh, ethnographic narrative that also people tell about, oh, well, why? had this experience and then I recited and it lifted off of me. Right. Uh, I was able to, to move again. Right. So there's some really kind of interesting work that's just starting to be done on the, in, the, in that arena. Where is but that happening? Very Who's common. doing that? So um, I'd, I'd have to look up the names, but there's a couple people uh, that I've come across um, whose works are really, really good. And they're based mostly, if I remember correctly, in West African ethnographic work. Okay. Uh, oh no, no. I think it's East African. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it's East African ethnographic work, and it involved uh, a mixture of mental health analysis combined with ethnographic work. So the the article, and I can find it and send it to you if you're interested. Um, yeah, actually I would love involves that. In, interviewing uh, uh, women healers who deal specifically with night terrors. Uh, and how how they deal with those night terrors and the kind of medicine, the the natural remedies that they prescribe, um, and it's a really really interesting kind of work, and it is growing, uh, and and there's a lot of kind of ex- exploration of the components of health, mental health, psychology, and you know religion and esoteric or folk religion, we'll say, yeah. uh, 
and and I think the gin and night terror is right dead in the center of that. Yeah, I mean it is. I mean you know I'm sure we've all experienced this where you have, especially mm-hmm. with older folk. But back home, there are times when you know that somebody clearly has mental health issues, or they need some kind of psychological or, right. or psych, psychiatric diagnosis and assistance. Uh, but the family insists, no, it's a gin, it's a gin possession, or you know, and yeah. for that reason, you know, there are people who don't get maybe the help that they need. Um, yeah. And so it's, I mean, that's, that has to be really difficult, like as a line to try to, I mean, I yeah. guess my, where I have fallen on that, when I have encountered that personally with people I know is for me to say, okay, it's like totally do the gin exorcism, but also like just try both, like do everything at the same time. Like mm-hmm. why, why, why take your chances? Um, but I don't know if it, that's just a, it, it, if it's a, like a shame reaction. Like we would prefer to think of our loved one as being possessed than being mentally ill. I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, I think I think the discourse of shame plays a plays a big role there um, as well. I think um, th- there's a there's certainly some sort of language about well, this isn't normative behavior, therefore it must be attributed to something external. Um, and so I think that there is, there's a sort of space there where shame plays a big role, uh, that there's a way of kind of, you know, deflecting, oh, this is, this person isn't ill. This person is just dealing with a gym. And once we resolve that, everything can go back to normal. Um, and so I think that the, there's definitely something there and, but there's also really great work being done by mental health professionals in the, in the Muslim community to help kind of push back on the stigmas of mental health and, and kind of give people the language, uh, the vocab they need to address, you know, their experiences. Um, so you mentioned, uh, I, you know, the the gender issue. I mean, do we know for mm-hmm. sure from or for, do we from what we know? Do we know for sure that mm-hmm. jinn are like human beings, like you know, have, have kind of you know specific gen- like male, female? Could there not be three or four or five or other kinds of genders that we don't know about in the jinn world? Well, the jinn are are described as shapeshifters, okay. and so uh, male jinn are also female jinn, and female jinn are also male jinn. Well, we are told that they have families and they have children, and so they obviously copulate and they obviously uh, you know reproduce. But they are they're accurately described as non-binary in that they really kind of shift all over the place. There's very famous examples, and even within the written lore itself of jinn being referred to sometimes as male, sometimes as female, sometimes as just we don't know. Um, Maimun is a very famous jinn. He's a jinn king associated with Saturday. But in North Africa, he's Maimuna. He's a female jinn. Mm. Now, some go, well, that's his, that's his sister. And others go, no, no, that's him. He's both. Uh-huh. He's simultaneously a jinn king and a jinn queen. Uh, and, you know, it depends on which day you, you get him. Uh, and so they, they, they kind of fall into this much more nebulous, abstract, well, there's very clearly certain gendered anxieties about the jinn, and you can per- certainly see the sort of projections of, of male authors in particular um, on the jinn. On the whole, the lore is actually far more nebulous and far more kind of diverse, that jinn do shapeshift, that jinn do have kind of multiple genders there. Uh, and then there's even lore that's that's even, you know, sort of weirder, Iblis. Uh, the you know Islamic concept of, of the devil uh, is said to have uh, both genitals, hmm. 
So there's this kind of fascinating discussion about gender that's being happened with the jinn, and they exist kind of in this really nebulous state. Uh, so I think it, it's pretty accurate to say that that in kind of contemporary terms, they're they're non-binary. They aren't as fixed in in gender as we might imagine them to be, or, or even in terms of sexuality. They're kind of a, their own thing, mm. um, reflecting a sort of diverse experience. But they they have been known to fall in love with humans, to pursue sexual yep. involvement with human beings. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I have uh, one friend who, you know, according to her, and I, she is incredibly competent and smart and reliable and trustworthy, and I have no reason not to believe her, <laughs> uh, for years apparently was just some a jinn was obsessed with her and just followed her uh-huh. from place to place to place and she had some terrifying experiences um and made it very difficult for um, i mean I, I don't know if it made it she thinks it made it difficult for her to get married she eventually did get married and i think was rid of the jinn but that was the first time i had heard of anything like that mm-hmm. um but i noticed I think when you did an AMA on your Twitter, that some one of the women who responded said something about, you know, what happens if a jinn follows you around? Like, how do you get rid of that? So it just it seems like those stories are not so uncommon that yeah, jinn can fall for you and get obsessed with you. I mean, totally. I mean, one of the main kind of ways that they interact, and I did a thread on on the kind of interactions with humans, is the most popular one is the visitation, right? They just kind of show up. Uh, and then that's kind of, you know, in, in the, the sort of lore as well as in the kind of interviews that you have with people, though, it's just mostly an act of curiosity. They're kind of showing up and they're kind of looking around. Possession is another one that you'll find, uh, but just as equally common is, is, is love. Now, there's some of those are complicated by stories of abduction. And it talks about that the jinn falls in love with a person, and therefore they're abducted into the jinn world. Uh, that that uh, There's language around that. Um, but there's also instances of them just kind of stalking. So that becomes a very kind of common motif mm. um, uh, amongst certain uh, groups that, that a jinn will fall in love and they become obsessed with the person. And then they'll just kind of follow, follow that person around throughout their lives. This can be an, described by people as an intrusive experience, uh, as one that is disruptive and destructive, um, often explaining, this is why I can't get married, because I have a jinn that's been following me around, right. as, you, as your friend said. Uh, that's actually not uncommon. You, you, we do hear that quite a bit. Um, in other instances, it's not always disruptive. Sometimes it can be positive. Uh, for example, kind of the oldest case of, of this is a, uh, a woman that we have from from a narration that indicates that um, a male jinn had fallen in, in love with her. I mean, he followed her around. And in turn for his affection, he taught her medicine. He taught, gave her skill, certain skills. So it's a kind of complicated relationship. It can be disruptive. It can be intrusive. Uh, and at other instances, it can be more positive. For example, in Indonesia and Malaysia, those relationships can be seen in sort of more positive light. But if a jinn falls in love with you, that's a way of developing a sort of hidden skill, gaining secret knowledge, uh, that you might be inclined towards certain uh, shamanic healing practices. Um, similarly, even the abduction stories can sometimes be uh, told in a form more positive light. Uh, one individual indicating that, oh, you know, her son had been taken by a female jinn, but he was happily married and had kids uh, off in the jinn world. 
so there's there's a sort of the 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 stories there vary, but it is a common experience. This idea that I wouldn't say like everybody's had, one, but it's certainly more common than people might think. The idea of a jinn falling in love and then you know following around that is a common story, folklore, narration, and for some people a very real experience for them. I did notice that uh, you commented on a tweet by this gentleman. I think he calls himself Dawa Man or something, <laughs> where there's like a clip, yeah, yeah, yeah. clip of him giving a talk saying, you know, sister, don't go outside looking beautiful because the gym's going to fall. Um, yeah. Your reaction was kind of like, uh, you know, but but in essence, wasn't he kind of right then? I mean, like in that sense, or what did you find? What was off-putting about that for you? So the issue is that there's always going to be within folklore components of it that regulate behavior, that regulate uh, people's actions. And that's old. and It's always existed. There's no denial of the fact um, that 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 idea of, oh, you need to cover yourself up with the jinn are going to, to fall in love with you. That that's not unique to him. My, you know, his history has always been quite repugnant. I'm familiar with this figure <laughs> uh, in, in in British Muslim circles. Right. Um, but setting that aside, that that is an old narrative. That's an old concept. It's not a new concept. Um, and we've had people who who made mention of it. Other people who disputed, uh, who pushed back on it. Uh, I think that the that particular approach is is problematic for a variety of different reasons. First, because I think that uh, what the jinn offer are kind of a variety of different things. And I mentioned this is that first, there's an academic approach to the jinn. It's a really great way of understanding uh, the way in which Islam has spread and the way in which Islam has localized. For people who are more mystically inclined or who are more inclined towards spirituality, the jinn offer an opportunity to explore the complexities of human of the human psyche, but also to experience the numinous, that, that force that is not us out there, so to speak. And for the faithful, it's a way of understanding the sort of complex cosmology, this very beautiful cosmology that is at the heart of Islam. Um, all of that, I think, is is great and beautiful aspect of the jinn. But I think once we start falling into the category of sort of fear mongering or, or uh, regulating behavior, then I think it can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no doubt that a great deal of jinn lore can be can be seen as a sort of superstitious or fear oriented or designed to regulate behaviors. Don't do this and don't do that. Um, and I, I recognize that, and there's, they're, they're worthwhile, uh, you know, exploring and examining. I'm just not very comfortable with the sort of prescriptive component of this. Hey, women, you should do this because the gym are going to do that. That is always, to me, sounds far more predatory than anything else. And it is almost always by some guy who's telling women how to live their lives. And, how <laughs> to, and it, that's the issue for me, uh, is that there is a sort of predation on fear and using that fear, exploiting that fear in order to regulate women's bodies. That, I think, should be resisted. But, you know, and I, I'm also guessing if if a jinn wants to see what he looks, what you look like, he can, I mean, he doesn't have to wait for you to step onto the street. He can just yeah. join you at home. <laughs> Right. So one of the things that, that that's with, even within the sort of logics of, of the lore itself, it doesn't quite make sense. The people who, who've said it, and again, this is not unique to Delaman. This, Delaman, this has been going, you know, thousands, hundreds of years. We've had medieval writers say we have all sorts of different people, but it, it doesn't quite fit within its own logics because the jinn live within your house as well. Right. So are you going to, are you going to be veiled in your own home? 
they're going to see you. The idea that if you have to walk out uh, veiled constantly or that you have to constantly be on guard, that the jinn might accidentally see you doesn't quite fit because one, they live within your house. Two, they're invisible, therefore they're going to see you at some point or another. And three, we're told that they have various abilities and powers in one. So if this entity that has all these abilities and powers and perhaps can almost practically read the human mind, um, I, I doubt that, you know. They're not waiting for a glimpse of your hijab to fly off, that's right. Yeah, they're not, they're not waiting for ankle glimpses or whatnot <laughs> yet. No. Okay. Speaking of the jinn that live in your house, there's one category of jinn that I'm mm. kind of fascinated with that I guess I don't quite understand where they fall in the spectrum of um, innocuous to mm, maybe problematic. And that is the jinn that they say that, that the tradition is that every person is assigned one jinn. Like there's one yes. jinn. Can you talk a little bit about that whole story? Like what, why do they exist? And, and I, in other places I've read that maybe it's not a jinn, maybe it's some kind of a double. I de- like I, it's a little confusing to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, Hamzad or the Kareen, uh, as it's known in Arabic, is the, the, what's known as the attending jinn. It is a jinn that is associated with an individual. They're born with it, and they, they have it throughout their life. On the whole, they're generally seen, I think, within traditional Orthodox Islamic approaches as a tempting force. Mm-hmm. They're sort of force that is aimed at tempting individuals. They're the, uh, associated with doubt. They're associated with anxiety. They're associated kind of with as as a force that 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 get, that gets us to stumble, all and counteracted by uh, you know for the angels that that are meant to guard in the people that keep them from doing this. And there's this idea that there's a sort of balance there between the jinn and and the angels around us. Uh, with us with heavily leaning towards the angelic side. Mm. But when you go down to the sort of folklore component, that is outside the actual orthodoxy, what people are saying, what ordinary people believe, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. The Kareem sometimes is seen not just as a jinn, but as a doppelganger, as a sort of shadow self uh, to a certain extent, or a shadow that follows us throughout life. And in that instance, it's also seen as a bit disruptive. But there are other lore components to it generally associated with esotericism in which the jinn is seen as a sort of alchemical process. That is, that your goal in life is to take this jinn that begins at birth as a sort of untamed jinn and tame them to become an ally. And once you've done that, you've reached a sort of spiritual potential. You find this within certain Islamic esoteric circles. And then this is taken even further in some occult practices in which the Kareen is seen not just as an attending jinn, but as a familiar spirit in which you can work with in order to achieve certain magical effects, creation of talismans, or whatnot. So there's a sort of diverse, complicated approach to the Korean, but traditionally it is seen uh, within the sort of orthodox approach within Islam as a tempting force, as a, as a force that exists in your life to tempt you, as a force that exists in your life uh, as a sort of negative side to you or sort of dark shadow to you. It it almost um, it brings to mind that image of like the person with a, a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. I'm yeah, guessing it's probably connected absolutely. to that. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Whereas in the Islamic tradition, the idea that you have 
multiple angels, uh, right. you know, working on your side with one Kareem that is, that is not, you know, but definitely that sort of the idea of a devil and angel right there. Yeah. So when the person dies, does that jinn die? Yes. So the idea is that generally the jinn is associated with that person's life. Uh, once that person dies, the Kareem dies as well. But again, it gets messy and complicated and sometimes contradictory. There are stories of how the Kareem continues on after because jinn have such a long lifespan. So there is some debate, but on the whole, most most kind of narrations indicate that the jinn also dies, that it is intimately tied uh, to the human life. And so, too, is its strength, age, etc. The more pious a person is, the weaker the Kareem is. It doesn't have much of an influence. It's just kind of a, a shadow that exists there. The more, you know, rebellious a person is, then the stronger the Kareen is. So it is kind of intimately tied to our personal lives, our experiences, our destinies, whatever you want to call it. Oh. I saw a tweet that I think you were responding to somebody. Somebody asked, like, how how can they die? Can they be killed? And you said, well, it seems like jinn mostly die by accident. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the jinn are, are said to be... This is kind of one of the, again, one of the kind of interesting components of how kind of, um, you know, contradictory some of the information sometimes can be, but also speaks to the kind of vast, diverse and creative stories that are told. On one end, we're told that the jinn are ancient, that they live thousands and thousands of years, that they are immensely strong, immensely powerful, and that very few things can kind of hurt them classically, uh, salt, iron, things like that. Um, but... On the other instance, we have all sorts of stories that talk about, you know, someone spat their seed into a, a hole and it accidentally killed a jinn, or they they throw a rock into a, a cavern and it accidentally killed a jinn. So for whatever reason, it seems like jinn are constantly getting killed accidentally, and that leads to all sorts of problems. That's when the jinn are offended, uh, and then they they wreak their their vengeance upon that person but through possession abduction etc the other common way in which that they're killed is in animal form so the stories of hunting that a jinn took on a snake form and someone behead that snake and then the cousin jinn shows up and you killed my cousin uh so that's the other sort of, of aspect to it is that either they're killed accidentally or they're killed in animal form and those are the kind of two common ways that we hear about their deaths. Other than that, they're supposed to be immensely strong, long lives. So they're very supposed to be very difficult to kill, but apparently when you're not intending to, you can kill a gem. So let me ask you this. Um, you mentioned uh, how in in some like uh, North African tradition, there's like a tradition yeah. of like actually inviting or summoning like possession. I've read something about like a jinn cannot enter your home until you invite it. Am I thinking about a vampire? Maybe I am actually, <laughs> but let me ask you this. Have you ever, like, what do you know about the summoning like jinn? Like have you, are they, mm -hmm. is it different in different cultures how it's done? Is there like kind of an orthodox way to do it? I know it's, I know it's considered prohibited. Mm -hmm. It's not considered permissible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the jinn, there's a variety of different ways. There is sort of a textual tradition that's found. Uh, this is would be, I guess the best way to approach it would be, or call it would be ceremonial. There's a sort of approach into which the jinn can be summoned, and it generally involves a certain formula, knowing the jinn's name, having some type of uh, purification ritual that's done beforehand, uh, lots of incense smoke, 
Uh, one author talks about how you have to burn a, a, a special type of incense, uh, and then you can use that, and the jinn will kind of appear through the smoke there. Uh, and that, that's found in sort of magical operations of whatnot within these medieval texts. That's one approach, and that seems to be the, the kind of common method found within uh, I would say literary circles and sort of scholarly circles, that that's one way to do it. But there is a great deal of variation locally. Uh, and so there are more sort of um, possession-oriented ways. Rather than summoning a jinn, the jinn can be invoked, that is brought inside a person. Uh, and then through the possession, speak to people, engage with people, uh, give you know, foretell the future, things like that. And that's found more commonly in, in North Africa. There's bizarre rituals in Egypt, uh, which involve dancing and possession, uh, found from Egypt to Sudan. There are the Bufi rituals in Morocco, West Africa, that involved uh, actually getting uh, possessed. Uh, and then this very elaborate sort of ceremony uh, that is done. Um, and then there are slightly more kind of shamanic for lack of a better word, um, approaches that we find in Indonesia and Malaysia, in which it's a sort of symbiotic relationship. The jinn are invoked through a sort of pack-making deal. Uh, a jinn is found or located through a particular, you know, natural ceremony, going out to a tree, going out to a cave, etc. And a relationship is built, like an actual pact is signed between the individual, the healer, and and the jinn, and then that jinn works with that healer. So there's some a great deal of sort of variety in how they're invoked, but there is a core sort of operation, if you will written roughly around the medieval era, still used by some people uh, in which jinn can be summoned, jinn can be uh, brought to manifest themselves. And then there are others that say you can't necessarily manifest it, but you can certainly invoke the power. And so you'll find jinn also make their uh, appearance in sort of talisman making, uh, the creation of sort of magical objects of some sort. All of this falls well without or outside orthodox Islam. Right. And it's considered deeply prohibited by, by kind of orthodox religious scholars, but uh, is a common feature of popular Islam. Not always directly. It falls into the, like, the black magic. I was going to say, yeah, black magic. Yeah. You know, some people call black magic, but some practitioners themselves wouldn't call it that. For example, the, the practices in Indonesia are seen as healing oriented. But orthodox Islam would definitely look at it oh, this is a form of sahar, it's a form of black magic. Uh, it's definitely outside what is considered permissible uh, within Islam. Um, and But but there's a great deal, at the sort of folk level and popular level, there's a great deal of kind of, you know, flexibility there. Uh, and some people quite overtly invoke for malicious purposes, but other people see it as, as a sort of healing practice. And so in some ways it has some parallels with, we could look at sort of the folk healing practices of the Mediterranean, uh, granny magic, kitchen magic, or the sort of uh, shamanic practices that we find in, in, you know, North America and South America. What can I ask you? What what is like the power dynamic there? Who is the who is in charge in that in those relationships? Is it? I've read that you know, and and uh, also like you know, in the story of the creation of, of Adam, of course, that that man is yeah. superior, but gosh, yeah, yeah. gender powerful. So what's the power dynamic here? Yeah, so um, 
humans are considered superior in Islamic cosmology, um, but the jinn are clearly very powerful in their own sort of way. So Orthodox Islam would generally, and sort of Orthodox scholarly tradition, would indicate that any type of relationship between jinn and humans is a sort of corruption, that the jinn is corrupting the human being. So even if a person thinks that they've got this powerful relationship or the upper hand of the jinn, the jinn is is subversive, that they're doing something, which is why a lot of these folk practices that involve direct relationships with the jinn are seen as uh, not permissible within Orthodox Islam. Within the sort of folk and popular expression, it's generally a far more symbiotic relationship in which the jinn and uh, the human are seen as in partnership for some particular function. Uh, whether it is to heal people or to give oracular advice or to foretell the future or whatnot, it seems far more symbiotic than what Orthodox Islam uh, would be. So there is there's some great there's divergence there uh, in terms of the power dynamics. I mean, I have to wonder. You can ask. Yeah, I have to wonder what is the jinn getting out of this? I mean, like you know, if they're telling the future for a human being or they're helping heal or helping somebody heal others, uh, what yeah. is the jinn getting out of it? Well, traditionally, it's said that if the jinn are involved in that type of relationship, it's because they are getting something. Generally, they are in love with that person, or there's an ancestral line there, or that they're building a, a relationship, right? They're working together. There's some type of something that they're getting uh, out of it. Uh, again, or classically, in sort of an orthodox interpretation, would see that as what they're getting out of it is the ability to just mess with people. Mm. So there's... there's so the argument there is that one of the reasons why you shouldn't be engaged in these non-permissible acts or non-permitted acts is because the, no matter what you think you're getting out of it, in reality, you're kind of being screwed over by, by the jinn. Mm-hmm. But uh, for people who, who, who are engaged in these kind of folk and popular practices, the jinn and humans have a relationship in which they live side by side and it is mutually beneficial. One of the mutual kind of mutually beneficial aspects of it is offerings. So for example, in many of these, these kind of popular practices that we'll find, if you're working with a jinn, you're generally giving them something back. Milk, candle, henna is a common offering that is given to the jinn. Uh, various kind of things that they get in return, like gifts, um, and then in turn, they bestow their own gifts, whatever those are. Wow. Have you, um, have you ever witnessed an exorcism? I have. Um, once. It was uh, an interesting experience. There's a very, it, was, um, it was a formal exorcism, not like a uh, sort of emergency, oh, someone's been possessed. This was in a, a ceremonial sort of context. Uh, and it was part of a, a sort of like, if you're ill or whatnot, you come to this place. There's an open air shrine in Morocco. Uh, and what you'll do is the, the, the mystic or, or the saint or the healer or whatnot will then perform a sort of a, a ritual of sorts in which you will invoke the jinn that is hiding within you. There's an element of performance. Music is played, uh, songs are sung, uh, certain incenses are burned, there's kind of ritual actions. It was very kind of stylized to a certain extent, which is different from sort of other uh, experiences of exorcisms, which are much more uh, kind of focused on intervention of some, si- of some sort uh, and are really kind of intense. 
this was a much more sort of formulaic, stylized approach, almost by the numbers, like people, people kind of line up who feel like they have something going wrong in their lives, they can't get married, they can't whatnot, and then they take their turn coming up to this person and they perform this exorcism and cleansing. And it involved uh, a bundle of herbs that would be brushed and kind of slapped on this person. Uh, the person would be, their limbs would be tied by some type of cloth. Uh, and then various forms of waters were sprinkled and the waters looked like they had some type of herbs in them, some, some, something other than it wasn't just water. Prayers are recited, songs were recited, music was played, uh, and then the person was unbound from the cloth and like, oh, you're free now. Some of them, some of the uh, people that came forward had very like a sort of intense reactions. They would struggle against the cloth, they would fight, they would scream, they would shout, and others had very sort of benign non-reactions to, to what was going on. Um, but it was a very stylized experience that I saw. But I did, I did see this um, as part of this kind of world travel that I did, trying to look for gin lore. <laughs> I've, no, I've noticed, uh, in, actually including that, that little clip from Dawa guy, uh, that he also says, I mean, the UK seems to be full of young, young brothers who are like performing extra, some of them on YouTube, uh, in fact. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, so, I mean, I don't, do you know anybody who does that, like here, out here in your area or on the East Coast? Because I'd love to see there something are, like that. There are people that do uh, exorcisms in, in the United States. I'm not sure how open they'd be to being filmed or, or talked to, but they do exist. More often than not, it's word of mouth uh, and or through a, a mosque. Somebody knows somebody who does this sort of work. Uh, they there are specialists of some sort. They they see themselves as kind of some sort of spiritual figure. They either an imam or sheikh or mullah or something. They are almost exclusively male uh, in 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 these circles, um, and and they do perform at one particular form of of exorcism that was done in the United States that I saw. Um, was involved in chains, chains that, or that I heard, I didn't actually see this one. The chains were being thrown over a person uh, in order to trap the gin. They repeatedly throwing the chains over and over, and the person would step out of it. So they do exist. Um, they seem to congregate in New York, Virginia, and Northern California. They're probably everywhere, um, but those are the kind of the places the people that I've spoken to. The, they've generally come from those kind of three areas. But I think any kind of population of Muslims probably has a few exorcists or a few exorcists. Who, <laughs> who, yeah, who end up having to do it because nobody else was going to do it. Yeah, who, who end up doing that type of stuff. There's a lot of, it's also a, a business. There's yeah. a component of, there's a financial exchange. Some of it can be quite exploitative. But they do this and they, uh, I think they're a little bit more open up in, in the UK, a little bit more underground. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, there are as many people in the world with gin stories as there are gin. So if you have one you'd like to share, make sure to email it to me at thehiddengin at gmail.com. That's thehiddengin, T-H-E-H-I-D-D-E-N-D-J-I-N-N at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, we are not alone.
The Hidden Gin is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Rabia Chaudhry and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Our theme song was created by Patrick Cortez. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.